Uh, we have been working through a series about um, defeating the hurry that dominates our lives in the digital age. Um, and, and, and we've been doing that uh, in a manner, or in a series that's structured after a book by John Mark Comer. Um, the book is called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And we started with a reminder of the nature of discipleship, uh, the calling to become more and more uh, like Jesus, reflecting not only his teaching, but also the way that he lived his life. Um, And then last week, we focused on trading in the the toxic hurry of our lives for the restful and spiritually nourishing life under the yoke that Jesus offers, uh, one that is easy and light and centered on life alongside him. But the deal is, we can't take up the yoke of Christ uh, and become uh, a yoke fellow with him and then go merrily about life in a way that is fundamentally different than the way that Jesus lived his life. Um, We need to practice the practices of Jesus. In other words, the spiritual disciplines are part of discipleship. It's about following our rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth. And while um, this idea of following the rabbi has, has really caught on in the last couple of, uh, of decades, um, this seems to be understood uh, in a kind of a general sort of way. That is, well, you know, Jesus was nice to people, so we should be nice to people. Um, uh, but we can also get angry about injustice, just like Jesus did. And beyond that, maybe, you know, it's just too hard to be specific. You know, I, I don't know what it means to drive like Jesus would drive. Or, or what does it mean to be married like, well, Jesus wasn't married. So, um, and so while some of these may be difficult to discern, other practical applications of the call to live like Jesus are not. We can follow the spiritual practices that he practiced. Right? The, the first disciples, they knew this. They observed Christ's vibrant relationship with his Father in heaven, and then they said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. And so we're talking about the spiritual disciplines. Um, And if you don't like the word discipline because of some past word trauma in your life, um, that's fine. Just think of them as spiritual practices or spiritual habits. And, And we're called to these spiritual practices because because they build up our spirit or our soul's capacity. In, a, in, in general, a discipline is any activity that I can do now uh, by direct effort, which will eventually enable me to do that which I currently cannot do by direct effort. Right? So if you think about uh, practicing the piano or, or lifting weights or, or shooting baskets, what you do is you, you start off easy and then you increase the difficulty until you can do in time, what previously was impossible for you, right? Eventually, you're able to do hard tasks easily and even automatically. Well, spiritual disciplines are like that. Spiritual disciplines are the, are the practices or the habits that shaped Jesus. And they were already ancient at the time of Christ, right? We, we see them all throughout the Old Testament as well. Uh, consider Isaac, already back in Genesis, on the day he met Rebekah, we're told, he went out to the field one evening to meditate, and as he looked up, he saw camels approaching, Genesis 24. And the call to the the disciplines is where the Psalms begin. Psalm 1, 
Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. So in this sense, Jesus in his day was not an innovator. He was simply a a faithful Jew of his time. And so we're going to look at at four disciplines, spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices uh, in the remaining weeks of this series. Um, We'll look next week at Sabbath and then simplicity and slowing at the end. And today we're looking at solitude. And all of these, all of these we're looking at with the aim of addressing the hurry that is so toxic to our spirits. So, we'll be reminded that Christ's own life on earth was shaped by these disciplines on a regular basis. In fact, uh, nine times in Luke's gospel, we're told of uh, occasions that Jesus got away from the hurry of the crowds in order to be alone with his heavenly Father. Right? Luke chapter 5 says, The news about him spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Now, last week uh, in the message, I talked about uh, uh, Pastor Comer's illustration of the disciplines as a type of structure to shape our life. Um, and so, uh, he used the, the trellis illustration, right? Spiritual disciplines or practices are to the Christian life what a trellis is to a grapevine, right? Uh, uh, in the Middle Ages, the monastic orders developed uh, these. Each established a rule or a schedule and set of practices, right? So we have what is called uh, the rule of St. Benedict or or the rule of St. Francis. The word rule comes from the Latin word regula, which literally means a straight piece of wood. Uh, Think, for instance, of the the word ruler. It was also used for a a, a trellis. Again, uh, a a straight uh, piece of wood, a, a wooden structure that holds up a fruitful vine. If a vine doesn't have a trellis, it will not bear fruit or it will die. So in truth, if you think about it, you are already living according to some rule of life. Um, It is the sum total of all your current habits, practices, uh, routines, and pursuits. And your rule of life has brought you to where you are today. Right? So uh, to adapt a quote from the management guru W.E. Deming, your life is perfectly designed to give you the results you are getting right now. So uh, just as your current eating and exercise regimen is perfectly designed to deliver the level of fitness that you have now, your spiritual practices currently are, are perfectly designed to deliver the spiritual life you have now. Now, if you would like to trade up the spiritual life you have and live the life that Jesus lived, then you need to practice the practices that Jesus practiced. And so now we're going to look uh, to the life of Jesus. We're going to meet up with him at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, After Jesus had emerged from 40 days in the wilderness, he called his disciples, and then on, on the Sabbath... Uh, he, taught, uh, he taught there, and while he was in the, in the synagogue, he, he cast out a demon there in Capernaum. And so we're picking up uh, Mark 1, verses uh, 29 to 39. 
As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. The word of the Lord. So if we're looking to the life of Jesus for for guidance on how to shape our own lives, we need to note that Jesus regularly withdrew to quiet places for solitude. In the original language, we're told Jesus heads out into an Eremos. Jesus had just emerged from 40 days in the Eremos, which is, which is translated wilderness. 40 days, that is a, that is a whole lot of solitude. And, and despite fasting over those 40 days, and in fact, maybe because he had been fasting for 40 days uh, in solitude, he was then in a position of strength. Right? We sometimes think that Jesus was, was particularly vulnerable. That's why, you know, the, uh, Satan showed up in order to tempt him. But actually, Jesus was strong after that time of solitude. It's, it was his launching pad for calling his first disciples. And then, if you, if you read uh, through Mark, after only one day on the job, the, the first day of his public ministry, he's back to the Eremos. Very next morning, he gets up, you know, uh, the day after the Sabbath, and he heads off uh, to be alone. That's, I think that's remarkable. R. Allen Cole, a commentator, suggests that perhaps the healing ministry of Jesus was more difficult for him than we might think. Recall that when Jesus was touched in faith uh, for healing by the woman who had been subject to bleeding for more than 12 years, Jesus said this, He said, someone has touched me. I know that power has gone out of me. It is possible that healing then was an exhausting ministry for Christ. Luke says in chapter 6, all the people tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. That alone might explain his frequent withdrawals withdrawals to the Eremos. But it's helpful to remember that Eremos, which as it is, is often translated wilderness, was, was not necessarily the kind of wilderness that we have in mind when we think about the Bible. It wasn't necessarily a, a desert waste, but it's simply a solitary place, a place to be alone, a place apart from you know, the rest of society. Right? I, I think of the Eremos that is near my house, which is com- conveniently named the Eremosa Karst. Uh, and a place, an Eremos is a place with all the best benefits of 
the Exodus. Right? And Eremos is a place of restoration from demanding labor and fellowship with God. That is why solitude with silence is, is said to be the most important of all the spiritual disciplines by many uh, throughout history. Henry Nouwen wrote, Without solitude, it is virtually impossible to live a spiritual life. We do not take the spiritual life seriously if we do not set aside some time to be with God and listen to Him. Right? If, if, if our relationship with God is indeed a personal relationship, uh, it, it's like other relationships that we have. Right? You, you cannot be a good spouse or a good parent if, you're, uh, if you spend your time studying marriage or, or parenting books or videos or you listen to lectures about your spouse or you go to classes to hear about your kids, but you don't actually spend any time with your spouse or your children. Right? You can't nurture your relationship with God if you don't spend time, if you don't abide with Him. Now, we might say, well, it was all very fine and good for Jesus, right? How difficult, we might wonder, how difficult was it for Jesus to be alone in antiquity? I mean, we might think it was probably pretty easy. Right? I mean, you don't have mass communications. He doesn't have a cell phone that's ringing. He's not getting texts. He's got lots of open fields nearby in the villages. Plus, you know, in the world, there was just a whole lot less people anyway. Right? So we get, again, this, this picture of a fantasy world. We're, we're back in last week's David Roberts painting. Right? You, just, you just head out over the hill, out of the village, and boom! Solitude. You're alone. Now contrast that with our world, right? our real world. Right? We live in large cities. We have, each of us, a, a dozen different contact points. We have phones. We get Facebook Messenger. We get texts. We have WhatsApp. Plus, we have the demands of, of family and bosses and employees uh, and students. And so we might think, well, solitude, you know, fine for Jesus, but it's just too hard for me, right? And, you know, you can sit there and say, oh, yeah, well, you know, you're a pastor, so, you know, solitude's probably part of your job description somewhere. Or, you know, many of you know, my kids have, my kids have grown up mostly. Um, the youngest one, he's off in Europe somewhere. So easy for you to say. Right? I've got a business. I've got a young family. I've got small children. I've got a classroom. I live in a dorm. I've got a shared bedroom. Whatever. See, you know, you have no idea what my, my life is like, you might think. And you're right. I don't. I don't. But to say solitude just isn't possible for me like it was for Jesus, eh, I think the opposite might be true. Right? Because we can shut off our contacts. You just turn off your phone. Don't answer email. It's amazing today how, 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 how not answering email just stymies people. Right? People say, I, I don't know what to do. I, I emailed him three times. He hasn't responded. I, 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 maybe he's sick, gone, I don't know. You just don't answer email. Bang, solitude. We're so digitally connected, we just turn off our, vice, our devices and suddenly it seems like we're completely inaccessible. And you say, well, you know, that's fine for you, but I can't, I can't shut off my devices. I, I can't disconnect or get away because people depend on me. It's like, really? More than on Jesus? I might be pushing it. I'd like to suggest that it was perhaps more difficult for Jesus to find solitude then than it is for us today. Because 
digital or remote communication was never an option, if you couldn't see somebody, you would automatically go looking for them. Right? It's, it's what happened in our text. Right? Peter and the disciples, they get up, Jesus isn't there, bang, they go, they go out looking for him. And all kinds of people went looking for Jesus. You've got to remember, Jesus is healing people of their diseases in the time before medicine. No wonder crowds of people, Peter tells us, right? Uh, everyone is looking for you. No wonder. At the end of the chapter that, that we read, Jesus heals a leper and he tells that man, you know, don't tell anybody. And of course, that man goes off and he tells everybody what Jesus did. And this is what Mark writes. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in the lonely places. And yet the people still came to him from everywhere. Later in chapter 3, a crowd gathered so that Jesus and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And part of that context for Jesus too was, was this pressure, subtle pressure perhaps, from his disciples themselves, right? In Peter's words to Jesus, everybody's looking for you. There's this implicit disappointment that Jesus had had gone off on his own at a crucially busy and successful beginning to his ministry. But Jesus had to do it. That's that's why he leaves at at such an early hour. Basically, I mean, he, he left in the middle of the night while it was still dark. And he took off to some remote location. In spite of all of the pressures that was on him and all the work to be done, Jesus took time to seek solitude with his Father. He did it because he needed it. After just one day in the job, he's back at the Eremos. His getaways were often at night after an intense time. The Son of God needed solitude for a healthy spiritual life, for the fullness of his calling. Right? This, is, this is what he was called to do. He did not say to Nicodemus, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to establish a thriving medical practice in Capernaum. No, Jesus was called out. And that's why he insisted on it. He insisted on his solitude. After the feeding of the 5,000, there's this easily overlooked detail. Jesus the, the text tells us, Mark 6, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. He didn't invite them to leave. He didn't encourage them to go. He made them get into the boat. Jesus needed solitude, and you need it too. To find freedom from the toxicity of hurry, Like Jesus, we live within the confines of our human limitations. That means outward exertion always has to be followed by inward restoration, right? So exercise and then eating, exhaling and inhaling, compassionate service and restful solitude. Now, you may insist, you may still be thinking, yeah, but you don't don't know how hard I have. You don't know what my life is like. Well, you know what? If you can make a convincing case that you are the exception, that there is no margin in your day, that you cannot possibly lay aside your busy schedule, then I will concede, right? Fine, you win. You are in too much of a hurry to be a Christian. For the rest of us, we're going to conclude the message 
with a little bit of a kind of a seeking solitude guide for beginners. First, recognize that solitude is not about addition, it's about subtraction. Right? Because you might be wondering, okay, I, I get it, but how am I ever going to add solitude to my life, to my schedule? Well, that's not how it works. You have to give something up. Give, give something up that is of less value in order to gain something that is of greater value. Right? It's, it's, it's like sacrifice. It's the Old Testament thing. Right? A burnt offering goes up in flames. It's gone. You've given it up. So consider how you spend your time and then choose what to give up. Maybe you'll, maybe you'll get up earlier in the morning. Maybe you take a shorter lunch break. Maybe tonight you'll watch only two episodes of that show that you're, you're currently binge-watching instead of three episodes. Or maybe it's some Candy Crush or Facebook or Reddit or TikTok. Whatever. Find something to give up and be, be conscious of giving it up. Lest you find yourself simply adding. And it may require an accomplice. You know, help from a, from a co-worker to cover some time while you take a longer lunch. Uh, or a spouse who's going to intercept the kids on their way to find you. So first... Recognize it's not about addition, but subtraction. Figure out what to subtract. Second, find a time. Uh, I'm going to say 10 minutes to start. Try to make, make it towards uh, up to a half an hour. I encourage you to do it each day. We talked about this in the past. I looked over my old notes. I think I said, you know, try sometime this week to find some solitude, you know, for 15 minutes once in the week. I think, I think it's got to be a daily thing. A daily thing. For, for many of us, an easy way to find 10 minutes is this. Just don't reach for your phone for 10 minutes. There, boom. Uh, Pastor Comer talks, writes about how before the smartphone, uh, back in the 90s and earlier, there was this thing that we called boredom. Boredom is what happened when you weren't able to fill your time by reaching for your phone or going online. So you would be, uh, let's say, in the, in the checkout line, and there'd be a few carts ahead of you, and what you would do is you would just stand there. That's, that's how we did it back when. Moments with nothing to do have been stolen by the smartphone. That handy-dandy instant dopamine dispenser. That's in your pocket. Each day this week, take opportunities to not awaken your phone. Maybe your phone is feeling hurried too. Maybe it needs a break. Take opportunities to not wake up your phone and instead engage the moment. Reflect on your day. Uh, do what's called uh, go to the balcony. And that is wherever you are, think about how, how you look. Like imagine going to the balcony and looking down on, on where you are and, and where you're standing, what you're doing. Take time to just pray. Right? Show up for something early and then just sit in the car if you're waiting for your kids at the school or whatever. Be there a little early and, 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 and be in solitude. You can find intentional short time for solitude. For some of us, this will be easier. You know, retirees and pastor types. Um, although, although, I will say for, for retirees, make sure that you don't assume that your whole day is filled with solitude and so that you actually have none. Solitude is mindful and intentional. 
Set aside time and schedule into your time a time of solitude. Find time early in the morning uh, during your kid's nap time. Maybe it's late at night. Maybe you're the first one who's home from school and that can be a good one for you. Or maybe it'll be on the way home from work. You just, you know, pull off to the side of the road. I'd also like to, you to consider um, a longer time of solitude, maybe an annual retreat of, of an afternoon or even an overnight. And again, this is where, oh yeah, that's a pastor thing. I'd like to consider this. If you think that you can't possibly take a day for solitude, for a solitude retreat, once in the year, ask yourself, what would I do if suddenly because of an an accident or some emergency, I found myself in the hospital overnight? What arrangements would be made? What what would happen in order for, what what would come to a stop if if, if, if that were to happen? And then go do that. Because it's the same kind of thing. It's your annual day in the hospital of solitude. And if, and if you know, for those who are, who are looking for some advanced application, if you already or can easily and regularly get away for solitude, at, let's say at the beginning of your day, then I encourage you to consider adding a second time of solitude in the middle of your day. Okay, so uh, subtraction, uh, find a time, uh, and find a place, right? It may be at home. It may be your bedroom, uh, a, a quiet chair, some, somewhere outside, uh, uh, a, a bench in your neighborhood, your car, uh, a park. Or maybe it's elsewhere. Maybe, you know, we have a prayer room here at church. If you live nearby or, or we're on your commute one way or another, um, stop by and use our prayer room. Or maybe there's a church in your neighborhood that's got open doors. All right, uh, subtract time, place. Um, finally, when you get there, you might think, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm in my solitude, what do I do? Well, the answer is you don't. Remember, we are subtracting. At the beginning, just be. And, and, and this may be more difficult than, than, than you anticipate. But just for 10 minutes or 15 minutes, just sit. Just be there. Lean into the solitude and the silence of you with God. And in the beginning, you can expect distractions. Because sometimes the reason we fill our lives with external noise is because we're drowning out the internal noise that is within our spirits. If you, if you turn off the external noise, you're going to hear the inter, that internal noise. Practice just pushing it aside. Or, or listen to it to figure out what... How is it with my soul? Sit and be and notice. Notice yourself. Notice your thoughts. Notice God's presence in your life. Reflect on on what he's been up to with you lately. What to bring at at the start uh, and, and, and regularly don't bring anything. Just your presence. In time as it becomes uh, more familiar, uh, perhaps bring along a, a verse of scripture or, or, a, or a longer text to meditate on, to reflect on. On occasion, bring along the lyrics of a hymn or a poem or a leaf or a flower. This discipline of solitude is a solid place for restoring and renewing your walk with God. 
It's a right first step on the journey God calls us to in Jeremiah 6, verse 16. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Seek the good way and walk in it. And you will find rest for your souls. Or as Jesus put it, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, in the quiet of this time together, we turn to you. We're filled with gratitude at your life, not only surrendered, but your life as a model for our own walk with our Heavenly Father. We pray that you will give us what we need in order to spend time with you. Help us to look critically at our schedules, how we spend our time, and begin to find places where we might just abide in you and find rest, to take down the, the RPMs of our, of our busy, hurried spirits down to you know, a steady idol. Restore us, we pray, for your namesake and for your glory. Amen.